This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you for that. And um, for those of you who saw, uh, well, not all of you saw Lauren's uh, keynote, it was, it was really inspiring and it's great that what I'm going to be talking about is, is kind of a build on that. Um, uh, she was talking uh, in one part of her, her presentation about uh, the service design of, of organisations and transforming organisations. This is going to be about transforming uh, a whole industry. But first I'm going to start with a little story. So, Jane is a 27-year-old junior medical officer. She started working uh, recently in a busy tertiary hospital in the heart of Sydney. It's Saturday, 7.45 a.m. when Jane starts her shift. She's excited by the prospect of starting her new rotation in the ED, the emergency department. Jane's first rotation was 10 weeks on general ward, but she feels the ED is where she'll be able to make a real impact. When Jane arrives, Dr. Perez assigns her to Mr. Foster, who's an 80-year-old man. He was transferred from a regional hospital for a semi-urgent uh, surgery on his infected leg. Now, unfortunately, the electronic health record systems of both hospitals aren't linked, so they had to print off a stack of paper. Jane has to manually re-enter all the admission and medication details into the hospital's medical record system. Mr. Foster, or Ben, as, she, uh, as he insists she call him, is a retired professor. But when she came to check uh, some of the medical in information in his paperwork, Ben seemed confused, probably due to delirium as a result of the infection. He couldn't remember his medical history or, or his usual um, meds, so Jane has to call up his regular GP. After 15 minutes on hold, she finally gets the reception staff. They ask her to fax over a request form before they can release information about uh, about Jane's patient. So she spends another 10 minutes fiddling with the fax machine. Now she'll have to wait for the fax to come back from the practice. She goes to input de Ben's details into a nearby computer on wheels, or cow, as they're affectionately known. All these computers, these cows, she finds, are being used. Uh, she eventually finds a free one in another ward, but the battery's dead. She has to hunt around for one that's plugged into a wall. Now, half the morning's gone, so Jane moves on to the next patient. Wei is a seven-year-old boy with noisy breathing. She examines him and picks up an asthmatic wheeze. She immediately asks the nurse to administer eight puffs of a bronchodilator. Wei's breathing relaxes and becomes normal. His parents are relieved, crisis averted. Riding this little high, she works her way diligently through a string of patients. Amidst the chaos, uh, suddenly the, the ED gets a, an emergency call. There's been a major accident. They need all hands on deck. Now, technically, her shift has ended, but because they're frantic, she stays. Amidst the chaos, they need to transfer Ben to the ward and then to theatre for his operation. So Jane rushes over to the fax to see if Ben's paperwork is there, and it is. Uh, she, she gets it from the GP. She's under pressure. Ben's already broken the four-hour rule, which is the maximum safe time that a patient can stay in ED. 
She grabs a free cow and manually copies Ben's medication from the fax into the system. She clicks through constant alert pop-ups and, and struggles to get to the relevant field. Time is running out. The surgeon's due to go into surgery now, so Jane clicks past the last couple of alert boxes to finalize the file. Then she has to pick up the phone and page the surgeon. Jane has to now guard the phone in case the surgeon pages back. After an eight minute wait, someone calls to speak with the nurse. Jane curses. She has to page the, the surgeon again. It's now been 14 hours. Jane is still writing a report for the car crash. She's starving, she needs a coffee, and hasn't even had time to have a toilet break. Jane leaves the hospital four hours after her allotted time. She's exhausted, and she immediately crashes to bed. On Monday morning, Jane arrives early to see how her patients are going. She can't find Ben on the system, so she calls his ward. As the nurse starts talking, Jane's heart sinks. The operation went well, but Ben suffered a fatal blood clot in his lungs. He was supposed to be taking a blood thinner. In the rush of the handover, it must have been rejected due to a clash with another medication in one of those alerts that she skipped through. Jane hangs up the phone in shock. She feels the weight of responsibility. If only she'd read the alerts more carefully. Jane feels sick to her stomach. Now, Jane's story is based on research that we've conducted in hospitals. Incidents like these, um, in which harm comes to a patient through the medical treatment they're receiving, are known as adverse events, and they're much more common than, than you think. Um, I'm, I'm gonna tell you a, a few quick stories about this. I, I took my dad to, to the local hospital where, where I live, and they got his meds very, very wrong. Um, reverting to what they had in the system from when he last visited that, that hospital years ago. So what happened? Well, maybe the cow was busy and someone didn't get to put it in. Perhaps the system crashed, which is a frequent occurrence. Most likely though, his old meds were cut and paste with his history over the top of his new meds. It's a common error that occurs in the electronic health records. No matter what happened though, the result was the same. Dad's meds were dangerous, dangerously wrong. Luckily, we were there and my mum caught it. But what happens when someone doesn't? Paul Lau was a healthy 54-year-old who went to Macquarie Uni University Hospital just to have a, a routine knee surgery. His doctor wasn't trained in the new health record software and mistakenly entered the details of a much stronger pain medication meant for another patient into Mr. Lau's electronic chart. Six hours later, Mr. Lau died of multiple drug toxicity. In Perth, 41-year-old Jared Olson was getting treated for Crohn's colitis. After he was discharged, a late blood test came back, warning that he wouldn't be able to metabolize a certain immunosuppressant. Even though it was uploaded to his hospital's electronic health record, there's no system or process for alerting his treating clinicians outside the hospital. They prescribe the immunosuppressant and he dies. Are these bad doctors or poorly run hospitals? No. A 2016 paper on medication errors in acute care uh, found that for patients released to aged care, 80% of discharge summaries contained a discrepancy 
with a rate of two errors per patient. And this is similar to uh, the proportion reported in previous Australian literature. Between 2015 and 2016, 576,195 adverse events were reported in Australia's hospitals. It's over a half a million adverse events. This figure has been determined to be highly underreported as well due to the poor quality of the data collected, the, the fact that no one can get all this data and that it exists in so many different formats. So many of these preventable errors can be attributed, at least in part, to poorly designed digital experiences. Clinicians are hardworking, intelligent, caring professionals, and they're hamstrung by the technology that's foisted upon them. And we all know how, when we do testing, people who use poorly designed technology often tend to blame themselves for not using it correctly. It's no wonder that in a Beyond Blue survey, it was found that a quarter of doctors had had suicidal thoughts. Burnout's a serious problem for young doctors, with almost half reporting uh, emotional exhaustion. And a 2016 survey of midwives and nurses revealed that 32% were considering leaving the profession within the next 12 months. That's eight times the typical turnover rate for any industry. Healthcare is sick. It's a systemic problem. It's a wicked problem. Today we're going to bite off one part of that, the electronic health record, or EHR. But before we get into that, we need to understand three key components of the healthcare system. Cost, conservatism, and complexity. So cost. Healthcare is expensive. And the bill just keeps getting bigger. In 1970, Australia's population was 12.5 million. These days, it's just shy of 25 million, so it's doubled in that short time. In 1970, the average Australian could be expected to live to the ripe old age of 71. Now it's 82 and a half. We've, we've progressed uh, our age more than 11 years. The math here is very simple. We're an aging population, and we're rapidly growing. As we age, we need high levels of medical treatment. The cost of healthcare is increasing and our hospitals rely on government funding. Unfortunately, our politicians prefer to spend their money elsewhere and health always seems to be one of the first to get its funding cut. So hospitals have to continuously try and keep their doors open by ensuring they get all the funding they're owed from government, patients and insurance companies. That's why hospitals employ teams of business people to run them, including people called clinical coders. Now, these are administrative staff whose sole purpose is to catalogue the claimable diagnoses, treatments, medications, and procedures that are carried out by medical staff. And this is done using an intricate coding system with thousands of different codes called the ICD-10. Now, this administrative burden to keep the lights on is seeing us follow in the foot footsteps of America with the rapid corporatisation of healthcare in Australia. Then there's conservatism. Much like banks, healthcare, by its very nature, is conservative, and that's a good thing. It's learned from big mistakes, and it's cautious. Banks are conservative because, you know, people's money's on the line. Healthcare is conservative because our lives are on the line. Now, new things are always seen as risky, costly, and need clear benefits 
the risk versus reward ratio needs to be extremely high for anything to change. This conservatism also permeates the, the technology space. It's a culture of conservatism. Vendors and hospital IT departments follow old methods. Software design is, is done almost entirely by business analysts who gather requirements at arm's length by asking stakeholders what functionality they want in there. Development is mostly done in waterfall and goes through committees and subcommittees and SMEs to sign off. Think of what it was like developing software in banking in the 90s. That's, that's where they are now. The design and development of EHRs is business-centered, not human-centered. Much like the culture of medicine, it's designed by eminence rather than evidence. The highest paid person's opinion, as Lauren mentioned before, the, the hippo's uh, opinion trumps all. Hospitals in Australia are also silos. Federal government has some say, but passes the buck uh, um, for control onto state governments. These in turn fund local health districts, who in turn often let uh, each hospital look after their own technology budgets and procurement because they're saddled with legacy systems or complex systems. Due to the high security requirements and siloed way in which technology is procured or developed, it doesn't typically integrate with anything else. A GP's electronic medical record of a patient doesn't talk to a hospital's electronic health record. Diag diagnostic software doesn't talk to medical records. Specialist systems don't talk to anything. The software within a hospital doesn't integrate, let alone between hospitals. Even the patients have no access, visibility, or control over their own health data. Faxes, printouts, and scribbled notes still make up for most interoperability between these systems. Then there's complexity. Patients' medical situations are complex. They're usually not in a good state when they get into hospital. They misreport their own medical history and even their current complaints. They often have comorbidities, multiple issues at the same time, so it's really hard to, to get a diagnosis out of them. Patient care also requires multidisciplinary teams, coordinating their, their efforts, managing handover between shifts, interpreting diagnostics, ensuring pharmacy is suitable and transitioning patients into the care of others when they leave the hospital. And wards are chaotic, noisy environments. Clinicians are frequently interrupted mid-task with urgent requests, beeper pages or alarms to respond to, and have to juggle the monitoring of multiple patients. In busy times, clinicians also often are sleep deprived. They're hungry, they're thirsty, or bursting to go to the toilet because they don't get any respite. So they're not operating at 100%. Now the original promise of EHRs was to increase the, the quality of care by uh, providing a complete and living record of a patient's health and treatment. There's many users, from the nurses that have to input vitals to the doctors that update treatments, the diagnosticians who add test results, to the junior medical officers who have to copy and paste everything that they think is necessary into discharge summaries, the GPs that receive the patients to the administrators who bill them. But as with all these things, you have to follow the money. EHRs are ultimately procured by health, uh, hospital executives whose job it is to keep the hospital running. Of course, these executives also determine the, the priority of requirements and features which are developed by vendors and in-house IT departments. Unfortunately, 
as it now stands, electronic health records are not designed with the primary goal of helping physicians and other healthcare workers provide the best possible healthcare to their patients. Instead, the primary goal of EHRs is to make sure that providers receive maximum reimbursement and to supply health, uh, healthcare executives with the data that they need to help them managing, uh, manage their workers and their increasingly unwieldy systems. Being designed primarily for clinical coders and executives means that EHRs can actually get in the way of patient care and they do every day. They take precious clinician time from the patient and add administrative overhead to everyone within the hospital. EHR interfaces are often reminiscent of Windows 3.1. The layout is as confusing as someone's GeoCities fan, pa fan page, uh, for those of you who remember that stuff. The navigation is often nested levels on levels deep with uh, informative labels like ad hoc reporting where everything that doesn't fit into another category is just dust. And every time you hit a key, an alert dialogue seems to pop up to warn you of some really inconsequential thing, ensuring you'll never actually read an alert dialogue again. But nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. The problem seems too big. Clinicians have been complaining for a long time about this, but they have to use the tools that are provided. So they create workarounds for the technology by falling back to paper or employing more usable technologies just so they can do things quickly, like using WhatsApp for securely communicating diagnostics. This in turn causes more problems as data falls out uh, outside of the system and the patient's health record is left incomplete. Bad data in, bad data out. It's death by a thousand cuts and technology is now the silent killer and everyone knows the tech's bad. The latest rollout of an EHR in South Australia has been publicly crucified by clinicians. A couple of weeks ago, the AMA claimed that if the EHR was a car, it would have been recalled. The design and implementation led to pathology mix-ups, prescribing mishaps, and difficulty in finding critical records. Yet the rollout continues, and it's costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, unfortunately, this is not just an Australian problem. It happens around the world. It, it's happening with the NHS. It's happening in America. In the US, preventable medical errors are the number three killer. It kills more than 1,000 patients a day. That's 1,000 patients a day just from preventable errors. And doctors are crying out for change. They're screaming out for it. But don't take my word for it. Here's some American doctors trying to get the word out in American style. Chasing med records, writing so illegible that I'll be here for forever. Bought the new software, and though we use it here, I can't use it over there. Different systems everywhere. I used to chart on paper, all of my verbals recorded, mix up with the ward clerk. Turned diluted to diluted, switched me to that EMR. Meaningless abuse. G now catch me at the nurse's station, matching that F2 key. Notes used to be our story, narrative, but yo, replaced with copy paste. Now a bloated ransom note. Me, I'm at that bedside, focused like a laser beam on the patient. Now come on. I'm treating the computer screen. Eight dozen warnings. Click check boxes. Alarm fatigue. Vaseline conflicts with doxy. Nurses 
they be burned out. We could use some OT. Tell by our wrist guards that we most definitely. Um, and it, it, it's amazing, I, I, I was doing some, uh, <coughs> I was doing some background research for this and, and just stumbled across that and it basically summarised a lot of the stuff that we'd found in our, in our research and articula articulated it beautifully. Now, safety in healthcare is a wicked problem and it goes well beyond what I'm talking about here today. Um, but it's a problem that can be tackled with great success. We did it in aviation by applying human-centered design in the form of human factors programs. Now, as many of you know, human factors is where I come from. It's the science of safety, and it's a human-centered uh, design approach to um, creating complex, critical systems. It lifted aviation from the riskiest form of travel uh, to now the safest form of travel by far. And it's not just aviation that it worked in they saw the need for it in other safety critical industries. So they ended up applying it to things like nuclear energy, uh, to mining, 
to shipping. So why not healthcare? That is the highest safety critical area. In commercial aviation, you won't find an unusable cockpit or avionics system. Yes, they look complicated to the novice observer, but they're not. These systems are complex, but to a pilot, they're a thing of beauty. They're a tool that supports them in doing their job effectively and efficiently. These systems are designed and tested with and for pilots because they're the people that have to operate them. And they're an integral part of an entire ecosystem that's being designed. Someone's looked at the whole service, the whole ecosystem, and designed it to work together. From the controlled pilots that, uh, controlled language that uh, us pilots have to use in the cockpit, um, through to the, the way that mechanics have to account for every tool on their tool board before they close up an aircraft. Now, a hospital is currently the riskiest environment for your health. Shouldn't it be the safest place for sick people? But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It can be solved. All the ingredients are there. Clinicians want it. Their number one priority is the care of their patients. In our research, we've been floored by how dedicated, caring, and hardworking these people are. They don't go home until the job's done. If things get busy or one of their colleagues can't make their shift, these people don't hesitate to step in and bear the load and, and to make sure that the patients are looked after. But they're frustrated by having to deal with unusable technologies. Clinicians are burning out and leaving faster than ever before. So they're desperate for something better. Then there's a safety case to be made. The latest Grattan report on safe care revealed that one in nine patients who go into hospital in Australia suffers a complication that requires readmission to the same facility. Adverse events are far too common. I'm pretty sure a prescription drug wouldn't get PGA approval if it demonstrated the risk-benefit profile of a hospital. And there's a financial imperative for it too. The same report demonstrated that those complications in, in hospital cost more than $5 billion a year to the uh, health industry. And that's based on underreported numbers. And what about the burnout and drain, the cost of mental health treatment the cost of educating a clinician over 10 years who then leaves the industry in frustration, creating a shortfall that an already straining system has to make up for. Now, most of us in this room have experience dealing with complex, conservative, political, slow-moving organizations, things like healthcare. Uh, we've worked with government, we've worked with banking, we've worked with the large corporates. These are excellent practice grounds are an, uh, and are almost exactly the same for healthcare. The stakes are just higher in healthcare, that's all. As designers, we've had to make our way from designing digital interfaces to creating new products to directing strategy for, for these organizations and industries. It was a slow, hard slog, but with each demonstration of the power of human-centered design, we've made headway. Design now has a seat at the big table in a number of industries, and more sectors are eagerly following. And we can leverage that momentum. Of course, Safety critical design should have a little more rigor and a, a few not so uh, typical for UX techniques. But we found that operating in this strength only, strength, uh, operating in this field only strengthens our, our practice. So here's three things that you might already know about or you might not, that you might want to level up with. One, task analysis. Each healthcare task has, a specific, uh, has specific procedures 
and critical phases, a frequency of use, locations they're carried out in, and a level of competence to complete it. These need to be mapped out as clinicians deal with multiple patients and often can't complete a task in one go. They have to wait for things like test results, like a specialist opinion, a treatment reaction, uh, or even just for a bed to be made free for their patient. Now, there's plenty of good resources available for any type of task analysis you want to do, from cognitive task analysis to understand how decisions are made, uh, and hierarchical task analysis uh, for decomposing major tasks into subtasks, to link analysis, which evaluates the relationships between tasks and users. And task analysis ties in with situation awareness. High situation awareness is critical for clinicians. It involves being aware of what's happening in the vicinity to understand how information, events, and your own actions will impact goals and objectives, both right now and in the near future. In safety critical situations, a lack of situational awareness is one of the primary causes of human error. So clinicians need tools that support maintaining high situation, not to add administrative overhead and distraction. Finally, there's performance mapping. Now, a hospital is full of distractions, alerts, interruptions, and noises. Healthcare providers also might not be performing at their peak as, as fatigue and bodily needs drain their ability to concentrate. So one of the things that we found really useful for communicating this was to create a map of things that typically affect performance across organizational, physical, and cognitive dimensions. Now, we're finalizing something on that. We'll, we'll soon be publishing a, a tool that we're going to share to the community for this. Now, working in health is mostly the typical human-centered design process, but there's some things that, uh, some little tips to consider along the way. First of all, access to users. If you're going to be doing research in hospitals, um, it needs a little more planning. In most cases, you need not only the support of the clinicians and, and permission of, of the patients, um, but ethics approval to uh, conduct research in, in a hospital. Michelle Pickrell is doing a talk tomorrow, uh, just before lunch, um, and she can take you through the, the process for getting formal ethics approval. Um, we found a, another way to get around that, uh, which was uh, working directly with the Ministry of Health, which allowed us access to the hospitals without going through that lengthy process. Uh, we, we still had our own uh, ethics that, that got released, but we didn't have to go through the hospital ethics. Then there's recording. Once inside, you're dealing with patient confidentiality and are often unable to record sessions. So taking good notes is, is important, but critically, documenting the, the context of use uh, needs to be focused on. So uh, when designing technology for hospitals, we have to really understand the environment the clinicians uh, operate in because seconds count. Um, time is precious. You know, people can die in a few seconds. Uh, so we found it invaluable to have Al come along um, and sketch what he saw. W with an artist's eye, he was able to capture and convey the essential scenes, tools, and interactions because he's really good at doing cartoons. Um, then, of course, there's the patient journey. Uh, there's always two sides to a medical treatment, and this is the one that's most neglected. The medical professional, professional side is critical because they need to do their work, and they have to work in coordinated teams. But also, there's the patient side to it. There's a great podcast episode on 99% Invisible called The Blue Yarn. The staff were, uh, of a hospital were asked to pray, uh, trace 
the path a cancer patient had to take on a typical uh, visit for an oncology or chemotherapy uh, treatment using a map and a ball of blue yarn. Each of them, each specialist, each diagnostician was given a piece of yarn and they had to uh, trace from where the patient last was to where they had to go next. And they ended up with this elaborate tapestry. Once they threaded out that patient journey, the hospital staff were shocked. They were amazed at how far they made these oncology patients, people who were weak and struggled to even breathe, walk just to get to them. Of course, a patient's time in hospital isn't the only phase of their medical situation. They have a long and complicated history. They're often assessed and referred by another doctor to the hospital. Whilst in hospital, they see numerous medical professionals and uh, often go outside as well uh, for, for specialists. Then they're discharged into the care of others. And none of these transitions currently work with each other because nobody has accounted for the service design. At each point, someone has a piece in the patient's health data puzzle, but nobody has all the pieces especially not the one person who should, the patient. Everything is siloed. Systems don't talk to each other and the transition points are where many failures occur. A final tip, it's important to understand that research in healthcare can be confronting. You experience people at their most vulnerable. They're sick, they're in pain, sometimes they're dying. It makes you reflect on your own mortality and in some people can trigger uh, traumatic past events. As researchers, we naturally empathize with, with those that we're conducting research with. And when it's contextual, when you're in the midst of it, it's visceral. Researchers need to be given the tools to cope. There needs to be decompression time uh, built into research and into the project. Professionals, uh, professional counseling needs to be proactive, provided before, during, and after the research and design. We were woefully uh, unprepared when conducting some research on end of life management, but as a practice, we learned a lot from it. Now, aviation has a history of being conservative. There was no room for error. If you made a mistake and caused an accident, your career was ended. After investing many years to learn to fly and earn your stripes, you were deemed unsafe and shown the door. You can imagine how many people um, tried to cover up their mistakes. It's always been an expensive venture as well. Aircraft have to run on time. They have to be in the air to be earning. So this made people scared to ground an aircraft if they thought there was a safety issue. And flight is complex. From the electronics and avionics to the engineering and hydraulics required to keep thousands of kilos of metal and fuel in the air. It's also full of unpredictable variables such as weather and uh, bird strike risks and coordinating the uh, flight between the multidisciplinary teams required for these operations. Now, in its heyday, aviation was the most dangerous form of transport. It was the realm for only the most adventurous, but in the last few decades, the, the story has changed. It's flipped on its head. The aviation industry applied human-centered design, not only to the design of aircraft and avionics, but to flight rules, how flight crew interact, how shifts are scheduled, maintenance routines and air traffic control. We've designed the entire operational side of the aviation industry to work seamlessly together and to fit how humans truly think, react and behave. 
aviation is now about learning and evolving. It's an industry that now ensures that everyone has the autonomy to ground an aircraft or themselves, no matter the financial cost to the airline, if they feel that there's a potential safety risk. This is why there's often delays just to fix a warning lamp or to swap out a crew member. They also ensure that everyone feels safe to report their own mistakes. So everyone else, the whole industry, can learn from them. Commercial aviation is now the safest mode of transport. Most recent calculations I could find comparing car fatalities to, to aviation were for 2015 in the US. There were 32,000 fatal car accidents resulting in the death of, uh, of over 35,000 people. And in the same year, there were 27 aviation incidents. That is, the planes got scratched or, or damaged. There were no fatalities. Healthcare is very similar to aviation. It's a complex system where hierarchy and cost of operations rule the day. There's no room for error and people are quick to pass the blame when things do go wrong. A hospital is also the highest uh, place of highest risk to anyone's health. Healthcare is a safety critical system, so we need to be applying the best tools and methods to make it the safest possible system. A system in which the tools healthcare professionals are provided with ensure the best possible outcome for the patient. When an aircraft crashes, killing 300 passengers, a mine caves in, killing 1,000 workers, or a nuclear power plant suffers a meltdown, there's an outcry. People are quick to act, enforcing regulations and rolling out human factors programs. Patients suffer complications and die quietly, one at a time, every day, in their thousands, at the hand of poor design. As a community, we need to raise awareness of this issue and let people know that there's a better way. Simple human-centered design can make healthcare so much safer. There's some remarkable stuff, uh, as a community, we, we need to, to raise this awareness, but there's some remarkable stuff happening here in Victoria. The Health Inform uh, Informatics Society of Australia, HISA, um, now has a UX community of practice, and they're based almost entirely here with me as the only Sydney person so far. Uh, so please, join them. As practitioners, I urge you to upskill yourself in safety-critical design techniques. There's plenty of resources out there for them. And as designers, we all want to work on something more meaningful. So if you run an agency, start putting some business development effort toward the health uh, sector. Join discussion, discussions. Make practitioners, administrators, and hospital IT departments aware that there's a better way and that it works in other industries. Try to get a slot, uh, slot presenting at health conferences. That's one of my targets for next year. Do you remember Jane from the beginning? She's not alone. These caring, dedicated healthcare professionals are the ones who help us when, they, uh, when we need it. How can they do their job if they are in need of help themselves? My advisor at uni and mentor started as a senior nurse. She knew that there were problems that she couldn't articulate, so she jumped into human factors and became one of the world's experts. After years working in healthcare, she came to the realization that this was a problem she couldn't tackle all on her own. So my mentor reached out and engaged our services at Tobias and got us to start working in this. She's since gone on to work in America with one of the largest providers of EHR, leaving me with the task of recruiting you guys. Um, my team and I have started to scratch the tip of the iceberg and we've made some amazing inroads, but we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the tools and we certainly don't have all the people. 
this is a, a large area to a very well-funded area that needs all your help. The last thing I want to say is that the clinicians, doctors, nurses, they're our everyday heroes. They're the people who help us when we're sick. They're the people we take our mothers, daughters, fathers, brothers, and friends to. How can they do their job if the system they're working in is so fundamentally flawed and broken? Everyone needs a hero. We need to be theirs. Thank you. Thanks, Ash. And I, I have to quickly thank Alan and Diana Aube. Um, they're my story engines and visual communicators for this presentation. And as you file out later, uh, there'll be some lovely visual flyers of this presentation being handed out. Um, there's an email on the back. Please reach out and start a conversation with us. Uh, like Lauren and most designers, I, I believe in better. So let's fix health care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.